Good morning, everybody. My name is Jenny. I'm the interim uh, rector here at Emmanuel, and it is really good. Did I drop something or you did? Um, really good to be in worship with you this morning. The reason I'm standing down here is I've invited Micah to come sit with me and have a conversation with you all um, and Tim <laughs> together. Um, he recently got back from a mini sabbatical of sorts that um, was really fruitful for him. And I think it's, uh, we miss, you know, opportunities to hear about what God is doing in each other's lives all the time. So I wanted to give a little bit of space to, uh, for, for him to talk about these things to you all and to share them with you. Um, now everyone close your eyes while I get on the stool. None of you close your eyes. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Micah, I wanted to, uh, I've just been so blessed by some of the stuff that you've shared that I wanted to give the chance to, for everyone to hear it. Um, so just tell us a little bit about the prayer conference that you went to on your sabbatical. Um, and just, just the details about that, I think, are really helpful. Sure. Well, good morning, everybody. <laughs> good to see you. I'm going to read largely off of this iPad um, because I'm, I uh, do not want to riff. <laughs> I want this to try to be uh, as clear as possible. So um, I went to Portland, Oregon. I have a friend that pastors a church out there. Um, Tyler stayed at Bridgetown Church. And I did something really unusual. I went to a 24-7 <laughs> prayer conference, which sounds super kooky in some ways. But I loved it. Yeah. I, went to, I went to that, and I carved out some time. And really, sort of, my prayer was that I would just go to this place and ask that God would I could experience God, which is, as you know, very unusual for me to do. But um, I also wanted to go, you know, do some hiking and go to art museums and the things that I just genuinely like that refill me. So not camping, though, right? Just I do not camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah I don't camp. camping. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to. If you like camping, I have no judgment towards you at all. I just personally am not in a camping space in my life right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that's what I was doing. Can you tell us a little bit about um, sort of – what has been going on in your spiritual life the last like months and years and how maybe God kind of met you in that space during this, this conference? Like what did God do for Micah while you were there? Yeah. So I would say in the past year or, or a couple years, I've sort of hit a ceiling in terms of my spiritual practice, which is odd because I'm a musician. So I felt, I feel like I have a lot of embodiment practices, but um, it was rare where I was able to sort of connect music with prayer in a way that I felt like was really substantive in my formation journey. So, Mm -hmm. and then I kind of just kind of started to look at why that was and realized I was putting the majority of my time and energy when I was abiding with God into sort of my cerebral and cognitive formation life. And, um, which is not a bad thing at all. It's actually really helpful. But for me, it was kind of, I wasn't going through making my way through the world with much wonder or curiosity anymore, which I would say were kind of the hallmark things that brought me to the faith that brought me to Jesus was it just opened up things for me a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think through that, it stopped believing that experiencing God could be actually available as a wellspring of emotional energy, not like a name it and claim it thing, but just that. But sometimes. I, I was, but sometimes, of course. <laughs> yeah. So let's not. Let's, so like if I were to get up here and give you my personal testimony too, I think it would be full of strange people stories, nothing too crazy, but like it wouldn't be, hey, I'm a, I'm a brain on a stick mm-hmm. and I have all these great ideas and that's what God is to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the Bible is full of those as well. So yep. I was sort of in this place going out there thinking, how do I, how do I begin to open that up with God? And I felt like I had to do something. For me, it was unusual. We have three young kids and just to get out there was a whole thing. But um, 
yeah, I wanted to go into a space where I could really just open up my heart to God and ask him to take the initiative and Mm -hmm. kind of put these disparate things together for me. Yeah, that's good. So one of the things, the gifts is like being pastors in the church is that some of the things that God does in our life is just for us. Um, And then some of those things get to be like fruit for the church as well. So um, what do you feel like is sort of the fruit of that experience that you get to offer our church? For sure. I've got three things because that's what y'all do. Like preachers do that. So I was like, I got an opportunity to do my three things. That's what I'm going to do. So, Um, And I'm going to say them up front like y'all do too. So one... Um, it's a shift in how we view reality. Two is like reclaiming our Anglicanism. And three, um, embracing a new power that God has for us uh, as a community. Hmm. First, just kind of digging into how we view reality. So, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of, as a cross-reference, um, highlight this worship and prayer night. So mm-hmm. the hope for this worship and prayer night is that we would hold space. I love this term of holding space. Um, I've realized in my world, space just doesn't like happen naturally. Even if I don't have a lot going on, I'm not saying, hey, in this hour, I'm going to, I'm going to come into this hour and um, ask that God would show up in these ways. And then if, if it happens, not be surprised, but celebrate it and mark the time. So hold the time, hold the space, and then mark it to the degree we're able. And that's what worship and prayer is kind of mm-hmm. as a communal exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what I want. I think, I think we all want this faith that endures hardship, burnout, and yes. disappointment and, like, does it well. Yep. doesn't, like, try to fill up our – it's, like, it's not going to the gas tank, filling up, and then going to fight the world. Mm-hmm. I believe these worship and prayer and prayer is actually ultimate reality, not our current reality. Yep. So shifting that paradigm and asking God to, sit, to really say, hey, help me to see your reality as my primary one mm-hmm. uh, rather than the other way around. So yeah. I think that's the first one. That's good. I think since we're Anglican, we have this real, real, a lot of flexibility around how this can be done. I think mm-hmm. the liturgy um, allows us and kind of embeds rhythms of prayer in our life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also kind of ties us to very, very old things and practices. So um, we're not, I'm not making a theological, I know that some of our Presbyterians in the house are like, what's your theological stance on Holy Spirit right now? <laughs> but I'm not, that's, that's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm more saying that, that um, uh, we, we need to make space for God to show up in a um, really significant way. It's funny. I was talking to my wife about the, did anybody ever do the book study experiencing God like in the nineties? Yeah. She's like, yeah, three people. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that. Cause I, who, why, if there's three people, but um, uh, the invitation here is that Anglicanism provides a really, really in- interesting and cool form in our moment in time, in our cultural age, I would say um, to tap into what the Holy spirit is doing when we hold space. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last is I believe God has a new power for us that I'll, that I'll kind of, I'll pray Ephesians 3 over us in a second, but that's the type of power I'm mm-hmm. referencing. Um, I feel it in my own heart, even when the pull of the expectant status quo sneaks in. Um, I think a lot of us, myself included, have made like this internal deal with God to let go of hope to some extent, like uh, the kind of hope he describes biblically, of course, but like we've just been like, that's not happening for me. I'm going to go ahead and start thinking mm-hmm. more. And the more that I think, the more likely I am to experience Mm -hmm. God. And that's not untrue. It's just not the whole picture. So Mm -hmm. um, I think holding space to experience the power of God. So worship and prayer, just to be clear, I really hope you all can come out. But that's not the only space where this can happen. Like I just said, it can within our our Sunday gatherings. Um, But it's kind of, we have a real opportunity to prime this expectation in a unique way um, to where it becomes more of a hallmark of how we think about ourselves as a community. And I I like that, not just Mm -hmm. because I'm the worship guy, but I, I, I like that opportunity. Um, and I think the more we, um, 
the last thought I had there is Tyler, my friend who's a pastor in Portland, said something that stuck with me a lot, and that's that most often God answers our prayers by making us into the actual answer to those prayers, um, rather than you know, often, you know, it's oft, also God has answered prayers in an array of ways. We could we could say, but I but I think He's normally turning us into the types of people that will answer the prayers we want and shaping our desires as we do them. So again, making space, experiencing that type of power and actually being formed through, through these a variety of practices. Um, and and the worship and prayer is just kind of like a hallmark, a way we can do that with a lot of time carved out, with yeah. a lot of intention. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's good. Thank you. You want to read the scripture for yes. us? Yes. So um, I just wanted to invite us to open up our hands, and I wanted to pray uh, Ephesians chapter 3 over our church. Um, and the reason this, this scripture has stuck with me for like seven years, um, I think for a variety of reasons, but one is that the first uh, part of the book, Paul's really tapping, tapping into this idea of experiencing the power and the fullness of God holistically, body, soul, mind, spirit, before he talks about how we view ourselves as a community potentially. So he says, you know, embrace this fullness of power and healing and all the gifts that I have mm-hmm. for you. Um, kind of dine together around them, feed off them together um, so that you have the power to go forth and be the church and you actually have a vision for it rather than um, fighting for justice, fighting for prayer with no integration. So mm. this is like a really integrated prayer that has always given me a lot of encouragement. So okay. I'll pray this over us and then we'll, we'll go into the rest of our service. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we seek or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 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 Thanks, Micah. All right. We're going to read the gospel. If you would stand for the gospel, that would be lovely. This is coming from Luke chapter 20. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second, and then the third married her, and so in the same way all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. And Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God. 
being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now he is not a God of the dead, but a God, a God of the living. For to him, all of them are alive. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So one of the things I love about liturgy is the way that the liturgy kind of like builds off of, uh, off of itself, builds a theme throughout the service. Um, one of the like fun games I knew some youth in this church played, which is fun, um, is, is they would try to guess what the sermon might be about based on like what the texts were saying, which is like a really, really good practice for us as we're listening to these texts being read, um, you know, praying the psalm and things like that. So, um, so I invite you to that kind of thing. But today, uh, for, through the, throughout the liturgy, we've been praying about or talking about reading about the resurrection, this idea that we will at one, one point in human history like see God face to face, that something will change eventually in this kind of like state in the world that we live in. And uh, what a, you know, a great thing to talk about, resurrection. And obviously our text um, also talks about this, our, our gospel text. So we're going to be talking about the resurrection today. Um, it's always a good topic, but especially today as we have uh, so much offered to us in the liturgy as well. So we've heard a lot. We've been through the, the gospel of Luke together for a long time now. And we've heard a lot from our brothers uh, mostly, uh, who are identify as Pharisees, right? Um, so who is, who's the group that we're hearing from today? The Sadducees. Um, they were a group, a sect of Judaism, much like the Pharisees. They were a little off the beaten path in terms of um, religious belief, Jewish uh, religious belief. And one of those things was resurrection. The other Jewish uh, communities, sex kind of thing, um, they, they believed that our bodies would be raised one day. Um, they believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. And my least favorite Bible joke of all time is, this is why they were sad, you see. <laughs> but now you won't forget. Um, <clears throat> so... They did not believe in the resurrection, which is helpful in coming to this text because them even asking this question, whose wife will she be, um, is, makes them what we call in youth ministry, they are being turds. Um, <laughs> because they're even approaching Jesus with this question knowing that, um, that they're, they're just, uh, they're being annoying, right? And then Jesus responds, I love how he responds when he responds to things like this, especially this, which is like just so like obnoxious, right? That they would come and ask him this question. Um, that he responds like totally connected, totally like at peace with them coming to him in this way. And he gives them a really beautiful answer. He kind of like preaches the gospel of resurrection to them. And um, what a beautiful just way, way to exist in the world. So with the remainder of the time we have in this service, we're going to talk about resurrection. We're going to talk about sort of like the nitty-gritty of what, what resurrection actually means. And I'm very aware of like very different types of people in this room. We all come from different backgrounds and different theologies and things like that. Uh, so some of what I say today may be like maybe old news to you. And then for some of us, it may be brand new news. And um, for any of us, the resurrection is the absolute best news that you can receive. So no matter where you are on the spectrum uh, of understanding or belief about this, this particular thing, um, today will be a good day. 
because resurrection is the best, the very best news. So when we talk about resurrection, there's, um, we think about Jesus and his own bodily resurrection. And then we also have this like future event of our resurrection, our future resurrection. And so to talk about the second part, our future resurrection, I think we first have to talk about the, the resurrection of Jesus or else ours doesn't, doesn't make any sense, doesn't have any meaning. Uh, one of the things I love about this topic is that I get a lot of questions, a lot of theological questions as a pastor, um, especially as a pastor in a denomination that people are largely unfamiliar with. Um, people love to call us when we talk to like our vendors, they're like Emmanuel Angelican <laughs> or Angelique is our new favorite one. Um, it's not, Anglican's not even a term that people know a lot of times. So like what we believe is even farther down the path. Um, and so one of my favorite things is people come, you know, like, with, this is my denominational background. What do you guys think about this? So a lot of times different denominations will kind of have, like, the thing that they, like, hang their hat on. And that's what it means to be, you know, from that sort of denomination. And that's a really simplistic way of putting it. But if you were to say, like, what does it mean to be Anglican? There's so many things you can say. But the one particular thing I think is true of Anglicans is that we believe in the resurrection. We believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the eventual resurrection of his world and his, all of his people. Um, so if anyone ever asks, what does it mean to be Anglican? You can say, it means the resurrection happened. It means the resurrection is real. So we are going to talk about our own resurrection for the most part, but firstly, let's talk about Jesus. I'm going to quote from Paul um, in 1 Corinthians 15 a lot today. So if you haven't spent time in that scripture, it's incredible. I think we should all be in it all the time. Paul says this about the resurrection. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Believing in the actual resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is a non-negotiable of our faith. We just have to believe it. It's what makes sense and gives meaning to everything else. It's what determines our right now and our forever. Um, does that mean you have to understand it? <laughs> no. And if you claim that you do, we'll all say boo and like shoo you out. I'm just kidding. We would never do that. But like this idea that like you could actually grasp the bodily resurrection mentally is not possible. But can you as a person of faith believe that this really happened? Believe in the mystery of it all. You, you can and, and to a certain extent you must as a Christian. Or else, as Paul says, we are of most people to be pitied. Our belief that Jesus died and then remained dead, was raised, came back to life, folded his grave clothes, walked out of a rock tomb, is, what, is why we're here today. It's why we come and worship God together in this space. Um, so this is the, the thing our faith and our hope is built on. This is why we come together. This is why we worship God together. Romans 6, 5 says, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his, which I just think is some of the best words ever written. So let's talk about the afterlife. Ready? All right. So we've got like two parts to what we think of as the afterlife, which may sound surprising depending on what 
where you came from theologically. It was surprising to me when I first sort of entered the world of, of Anglicanism. Um, <clears throat> many of us grew up with this idea that there was one place you went after you die, and we called it heaven um, or hell, um, but that there was just one kind of phase to what after the afterlife looked like. Um, and maybe you, like, eternally sit around on clouds and play harps, or it's like a, a forever long worship service, which sounds really fun and exciting. Um, not even a little bit. So um, so this idea is, like, not super compelling to a lot of us. Uh, but we call this, like, life after death. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about life after death, that, um, that this is a, it is a real thing, a real place. So in the Old Testament, uh, it calls this place Sheol. That's the Hebrew for this kind of like dark, hidden place you go after you die. And there's this sense that like once you go to Sheol, there's no praising God. You know, there's, there's no like connection. There's, you're completely separated from all that's living. Um, and in the New Testament, it has a different name. It's called Hades. Um, and so we hear both of these references in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is the place that you go when you die. It's Hades or Sheol. Um, and this is, a, this is a very real place. So one of my favorite parts of scripture is um, when Jesus is on the cross. Remember this in Luke? And, um, and the, the thief next to him turns to him and he says, well, he asks for pardon. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So something about this dead and lifeless place that we go after we die, um, because Jesus goes into that space with his own body when he dies, he descends to the dead, Right? it gets transformed from this dead and lifeless place to a place that he calls paradise, which isn't that lovely. That everywhere Jesus goes, he transforms. It makes it into a new kind of place. So this afterlife, this uh, in-between space, it's not purgatory, but it is a resting place for souls. Um, a, A place between our earthly life here and now and our eternal life as resurrected people. As Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's just, that's good news for you and me, that that that's what death looks like. N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican bishop and scholar, uh, wrote wrote a lot about resurrection. If you'd like to read more, I I bought a bunch of his books. They're in the bookstore. Um, He says this about this place. It is a state in which the dead are held firmly within the conscious love of God and the conscious presence of Jesus Christ. And they await that day resurrection. There is no reason why the state should not be called heaven, though we must note once more how interesting it is that the New Testament routinely doesn't call it that and uses the word heaven in other ways. He goes on to say, this is not a final destination, but a blissful garden, a parkland of rest and tranquility, where the dead are refreshed as they await the dawn of a new day. So for us, we can rest assured that this is, this is our truth um, and also that this is true of those that we love who have gone before us. They are resting in the conscious presence of Jesus even now. So then we have part two of the afterlife. So we have life after death. Part two is life after life after death. Okay? This is the idea that Jesus returns and that resurrection happens. So we're going to talk about what that kind of looks like in in terms of what the Bible tells us. So the first is that the dead will be raised and living Christians will be transformed. 
So all of, of, of us and those that we love who have died and the hope of the resurrection will be raised back to life, much like exactly like Jesus was, into a resurrected person. And then the rest of us who are living when this all occurs, um, we won't have to die, but we will be like resurrected and changed, basically, changed into a resurrected person. First uh, Corinthians fifteen fifty one says, look, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we, we will all be changed. So what does this mean? What does it mean to be a resurrected person, to like have a resurrected body? The Bible's not chock full of things that talk about this, but it is clear enough. So here are some things that I'll say about this. Is that our bodies will be sort of more solid, more real, more substantial, and they will no longer be able to die or decay. You'll never again go on a run and have your knee hurt and be like, I guess this is 30, you know. Um, That won't happen. It'll just be better and better um, rather than kind of coming downhill. So 1 Corinthians 15 says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. Again, N.T. Wright tells us, What Paul's asking us to imagine in 1 Corinthians is that there will be a new mode of physicality, which stands in relation to our present body as our present body does to a ghost. It will be as much more real, more firmed up, more bodily than our present body, as our present body is more substantial, more touchable than a disembodied spirit. And we know some of this from the story of Jesus, of what happened after he was resurrected from the dead. Uh, That he was, in one sense, uh, unrecognizable. That when he approached his friends for the first time, his closest friends, they didn't recognize him. Uh, Mary mistakes him for the gardener. <laughs> um, how strange to, to experience the person you thought was your best friend and think they're a whole other person. So there was something that was like fundamentally different about him. But also something that was like when he did the things that were like super Jesus-y, um, that he was immediately recognizable. So when he like calls Mary's name, or when he breaks bread with his friends, um, or when he, you know, says something particularly himself, like, peace be with you. They're like, something reveals in him, and it's like, it couldn't be more clear that he is Jesus, just a different kind of person. He would also, like, appear places. <laughs> so he would be not in, in a room, and then it would say, and then he appeared. And he, they're using that word in a very specific way, that, like, he didn't walk through the front door. He didn't appear through the front door. He just was there. So there's some sense that, like, Physics will no longer have a hold on, our, on these resurrected bodies. And then it also, we know from Jesus' body that uh, he still had scars from his wounds. And these were not as sources of pain and death, but as signs of his victory. And, you know, this foretells that all of us who have, like, scars and things of what it looked like for us to live out our loyalty, um, our vocation to God, that we will likely bring these things into eternity with us. One of the things I love to, to say is that, like, those of you who had to have C-sections, I'm sh- most assuredly you will have that on your resurrected body, and that you will bring that into heaven with you as, like, a sign of victory. It's a really beautiful thing. Um. <clears throat> The resurrection does for us what it does for us in our kind of present state. 
is it ought to change fundamentally the way we think about life. Not just all of life, but like bodies in particular. How you think about your body or how you think about someone else's body. It should change the way you think about it because that person's body, your body, is destined for resurrection. It was like born as a thing that was made to live forever. And we ought to look at one another as though that were true and lift each other up as though that were true. It makes it matter all the more how we take care of our bodies, what we eat and what we drink, how we think about other people. Um, It's why the church, for the church, humanity, life, has mattered so much from the very beginning. Christians sort of inventing hospitals, not as a way to evangelize, but as a way to take care of bodies that were made to live forever. They were made for a resurrection life. The early church was known for um, adopting babies that would be thrown out in the streets and fantasize those kinds of things um, because of poverty or because of, you know, whatever reason. Christians were known as crazy people who would adopt these, like, gutter babies and take them into their homes. There was no restriction on life and what it meant for Christians because they understood that their Savior was resurrected, and that changed everything for them changed the way they thought about other people and themselves in every single kind of way. The lastly I'll say about just in in general resurrection, what resurrection means, is that this earth that you and I live on will actually be renewed. In some spaces there's this idea that um, earth is literally going to hell in a handbasket, so we might as well treat it like garbage. Um, That's not true. The Bible, in all of the places where it talks about eschatology or what it will look like when God returns to the earth, um, the earth is here. <laughs> he returns to it. And he, like, all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Uh, this beautiful imagery about what it looks like when heaven meets earth, that God will resurrect this planet that we live on, actually. And that heaven will then meet earth in a way that it was always meant to. They will be finally compatible and live together there so that God and God's space and all the things in God's world will combine with ours. And we will live together in this sort of resurrection world. That's what creation is destined for. It ought to change the way we think about this earth that we live on. There's so much more that I want to say. It's good, isn't it? It's all very good and interesting. Um, but I want to go back to this scripture and something that it says before I close. Um, because I think it has something very important for all of us today in like a, a very specific kind of way. Um, the question of whose wife will this be? And Jesus' answer being, no one's. There will be no marriage in the age to come. I think Mark's two important things that I want to say. The first is about marriage And the second is about singleness. And the first, that marriage is a sign of what life will be like in the age to come. Your marriage, your companionship, the loyalty, the fidelity, the sort of like sacredness in time, your marriage is meant to be a sign of that sort of companionship, loyalty, sacredness in time that will live forever, that will happen when God returns to the earth um, and we live with him. There, there will be loyalty and fidelity in a way that our marriages are supposed to be signs of, signs of this eternal reality. 
that in heaven you will have a sort of companionship with Jesus and with one another as the community of God uh, that will that all the longings of marriage will be satisfied. All the longings of companionship will be satisfied in him. That just living will be better than sex. We won't need it anymore. That's what this is saying. This is why we as a church believe so deeply in the sacredness of marriage. It's a sign of what heaven will be like. It's a sign of what your relationship with God will be like. It's why celibacy outside of marriage matters. Not because it's fun as a church to be cruel or legalistic or because sex outside of marriage is yucky. It's like none of those reasons that like the world would tell you Christians say no to this. The reason we don't do it is because it is a spiritual act of covenant loyalty. It's a like very spiritual, essentially spiritual thing. And we're saying something about our bodies when we do it either outside or inside of marriage. That not having it outside of marriage is a heavenly sign of our loyalty to God, of our covenant relationship with God, to honor our body in light of who he is. And that inside of marriage, it is, a, again, a heavenly sign of our loyalty to this other person, to what it looks like to live in a world with another person that you give all of yourself to. And speaking of celibacy, if you're single, you who are single... For me, and I think the Bible attests to this, you are not only a sign of the age to come, but you are like real little bits of heaven in our midst. Reminding us of our future together, our like eternity future together as brothers and sisters, companions, unmarried, reminding us that this future really matters right now. You are not a burden to married people. Um but a gift to us, like a very real and sacred reminder that um, our Savior went through life as a single person, and it wasn't a half-life. It was maybe like the most wonderful and fulfilling life a human has ever lived, and it was single the whole time, unmarried, celibate. I'm encouraging us as a church when we see people around us who look like maybe they are uncoupled, please be hospitable to these people. It's lonely out there. It ought not to be lonely in here too. We have to be more hospitable to those who, who appear, you know, to be single or to anyone, anyone who sits next to you. Say good morning, you know. We are like missing out on a key part of what it means to be in the family of God when we are not hospitable to the people around us, especially to the people who lived a life that looks a lot more like Jesus's in terms of their sexuality, um, their coupledness than married people. So I want to end by doing my favorite thing, which is quoting scripture. <laughs> um, I think it's the best way to have it to preach a sermon is to quote scripture. Um, but to pre-conclude what this text is saying to us is that the, the good news, right, why the resurrection is such good news for you and for me is because it gives your life meaning. It is the reason that you're here. It's the thing that like makes sense of the hardship and losing someone and miscarriages. It's the thing that makes sense of all of the tragedy we see in our life because it's not the end of the story. As hard as it is to understand resurrection and to like 
be a like 21st century person who really believes that like death can be reversed. It feels insane to say out loud, but when you sit at the bed of a dying person, you also know this is also not it. Like this is not the end of the story. And that is true for you and me. There's a reason that that's the case because this isn't where the story ends. Your work matters because it's going to live into eternity. I didn't have a chance to talk about work and vocation, but another time I would. Your world, your whole life, your family matters because you will live into eternity together. All of the kids, all of the parents, all of the friends, the coworkers, all of us are resurrection people. So 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going like to combine a lot of the scriptures that I read and sort of finish out that, that, that section of the chapter. Paul says this, listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.